All I'm looking for is just undervalued stocks. Like what way is the meta heading? Mm -hmm. It's like, all right, everyone's doing knees over toes. This is the easiest thing ever. I'm like, how about we train negative shin angles? And everyone's just like, this guy's a genius. (laughs) (laughs) No action, no action. It's like, that's what we're always looking for. Just like, what is missing here? That was Angus Bradley. And you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Lost Empire Herbs, and I want to share with you how to get a free bag of pine pollen through Lost Empire here today. Quickly first, I used to think herbs was just jinkle biloba you got at the drugstore, but after being introduced to compounds such as the Phoenix Formula through Lost Empire, I've been a regular consumer of Lost Empire Herbs for over four years now. The Phoenix Formula instantly changed my viewpoint on herbalism. I was literally buzzing with energy after my first dose. Within two weeks, I was noticing strength improvements in the weight room. And it's been fun expanding uh, my herbalism regime to different things throughout the Lost Empire Herbs store. In Phoenix Formula in particular, along with Shiliagit, which is a very popular herb for strength and performance, you also have pine pollen, which is a superfood. It offers a variety of energy, health, and performance benefits. And you can grab that free bag of pine pollen with the modest cost of shipping by heading to justflypinepollen.com. If you want to check out other herbs that I enjoy through Lost Empire, you can head to lostempireherbs slash justfly and grab 15% off your order. I can't recommend Lost Empire enough, and I really enjoy the fact that I've been able to partner with them through this podcast for as long as I have. So be sure to check that out. Let's get on to the rest of the show. Welcome to another episode of the show. It's great to have you here. Our guest today is Angus Bradley, and Angus is a podcaster, an educator, and a physical preparation coach. He trains individuals out of Sydney CBD, and he co-hosts the High Performance Podcast with his brother, Oscar. Angus trains a diverse crowd from strongman to surfing and everything in between, and he runs regular mentorships for strength coaches and personal trainers, in addition to the education he runs through his social media outlets. On today's podcast, Angus will be talking about learning from fields outside of fitness, so looking at fields such as cooking and music and bringing that into one's total process. A main talking point of today's episode will be Angus's approach to training early stance in physical development, also known as knees behind toes. And we'll be taking that through the full spectrum to also talk about training late stance or where knees are going in front or over toes. And Angus will be giving his insight on how he approaches training that polarity of the gait cycle within the gym, and we'll also be talking about how he looks at it within the scope of squatting, so expanding on some concepts that he talked about in his previous appearance on the show. Angus will be talking about this and a whole lot more on this episode. Not only is Angus so well-informed on physical preparation and training topics, but he's also really entertaining to chat with, and it's always fun having him on the show. That being said, let's get to the episode here, 357 with Coach Angus Bradley. Angus, I know you were talking about having, maybe you posted this, having a hobby outside of fitness on social media. I'm working hard to have more hobbies outside of uh, training. Um, been playing the piano a little bit, things like that, or attempting to learn the piano. Uh, this is probably an obvious answer, but what are some reasons that this is important, especially when I think it's, it's an, an industry we all get very passionate about, and I think rightfully so, but thoughts on um, hobbies outside of the industry? Yeah, I think there's a couple of ways to it. Like, 
part of it is the interpersonal sort of side of coaching where it's like it's just nice to be a bit deeper of a person than just the fitness or strength and conditioning side of you. But then I think there's another aspect to it where sort of my worldview is that uh, everyone talks about a principle-driven approach to our industry, but if it is a true principle, then it's something that applies to things even outside of the fitness industry. And again, the fitness industry is something that I view as like becoming more sophisticated over time, but relatively primitive, especially when you compare it to a lot of other industries that uh, embody aspects of both art and science simultaneously. I think a lot of these systems sort of have this transition from like a really scientific underpinning. And then once we actually establish some useful and decent scientific heuristics, then it gradually transitions into more of an art form. I think that's very true of things like cooking, things like music. Um, these are hobbies that a lot of people can really accessibly engage with. And often they already did engage with these things before getting into fitness. But then again, the rhetoric that I was introduced to when I became a trainer is that like, you know, nothing stepping into this industry. It doesn't matter what your other sort of skill sets or principles were. You need to learn all this fitness specific jargon and stuff like that. Like forget what you knew before. But what I like to do is to get people to if they have lost that side of themselves, tap back into it. Or a lot of people are still actively engaging with these hobbies, but they don't have the confidence to understand that like a lot of the principles that help them be good and understand and engage with these hobbies outside of strength and conditioning or fitness can apply to it just as readily. Yeah. I was gonna, you know, as soon as you mentioned other industries, <laughs> I was trying to reach for my paper to make a note. What you know, what other industries? I'm glad you you mentioned that. I feel like um you know, of those cooking is the most by far, like if you were going to start cooking, right? Like, and you studied the science. Of, I mean, I don't know. I was reading um, the book is like salt, Who's fat, that? heat. Oh, yeah. Um, what was that? That's a good one. Yeah. I was reading that. Yeah. I was like, okay, this is a cool, like, you know, this, this helps give me some understanding, some basic theory. But I, I feel like beyond that book, like how much more do I really need to dig into all the pieces before I just go start cooking and figuring it out, you know, and, and you taste your own cooking, smell your own cooking. Like a Darian Barr says that a lot, like taste your own cooking. And even through the process of training yourself too, where you're routinely tasting your own cooking as the art form. There's of it probably all. a lot of cooking skills that you take for granted because I've seen some personal trainers that like don't even know how to preheat a pan. So you probably <laughs> actually know enough of the rules to like, you know, play jazz in the kitchen, if you will. But like, again, it is one of those things and same with fitness where there's nihilists and they're like, none of these rules matter because you can't apply them 100% of the time. It's like, no, no, they're generally really useful. The art is in breaking those rules. My favorite chef is Marco Pierre White because again, he embodies the anti-fragile principles, which again are adapted from another industry that's been around a little bit longer than the fitness industry, like Nassim Taleb. He worked in finance and like probability uh, and things like that. And he developed like the anti-fragile approach to economic decision-making, which is another complex dynamic system made up of systems, very much like a human being that doesn't behave predictably, no matter how much historical data you have. And no matter how consistent you keep the inputs, you always get relatively inconsistent outputs, even though there are somewhat sort of patterns. So it's like, he's kind of like, you know, we don't, we get too attached to the data and we think that we can use it to predict things, but you kind of have to ignore it. And just focus on threats to the system and good enough decision-making processes. And it's funny, you can watch videos of Marco Pierre White preparing a chicken soup. And he's just like, there's a million different ways you can make a chicken soup. It's just about choosing, like not making dumb enough decisions and putting stupid shit in there. And he's not even aware of anti-fragile because this video of him is so old. It's before anti-fragile came out. But again, it's just this like innate understanding of certain principles that certain people have that transcend these industries. Again, that embody equal parts of art and science. 
and in fitness, we're just a little bit too obsessed with the science aspect of it. And again, I don't want to seem anti-science. I'm just saying it's always equal parts art and science. Yeah, it's it's just zooming out and looking at history, you know. And I was gonna because I was gonna ask you too, and you mentioned like you know practices that had their grounding in more science, and then the art form comes around. And I I see that though too. I see. I mean, that was that was my own history and training. It was my twenties, and even honestly, the training books I was reading, even in my like at age nineteen and stuff like that, it was almost all based on more of a sci- more of a scientific approach. I mean, well, it started with the art when I was in my teenage years. It's like exercise programs, exercise programs to jump higher, like trying trying shit, like all sorts of stuff. And then it got into more art. What's the science behind all this? And then now it's kind of come back full circle to trying shit. <laughs> I mean, I guess I've always done that. Because but- the science is really vague. Like if yeah. the science has told us anything, it's just like there's a number of approaches to this. And especially with a lot of this like biopsychosocial stuff sort of starting to come into things, a lot of it's just like, oh, you actually have to find out what people like. And again, same as cooking. Like you generally know what a good dish is, but you've got to serve it up to the subject and they've got to consume it and give you feedback so you can make adjustments. And it's the same with your programming can't just consult the science and make like theoretically based on the, that data, the best program. You have to make something like that, but then adjust it to the person in front of you. And again, that's all the art. Some people would call that critical thinking. I just feel like art is something that people can sort of engage with in other areas a bit more accessibly rather than just going and sitting and critically thinking. Yeah, absolutely. Artistic. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting too. I, I feel like, I feel like in, in the education of with coaching and training, it's such a complex system. Like I know you've written about this. And maybe we could even get into this as well. I'm sure we will later in the show. But like, why does CrossFit get people strong when there's no periodization whatsoever to it? Right? Like, what are the mental, social, and environmental factors? What are the things beyond simply linear periodization in the textbook that might be contributing to these people's gains? And it is a complex system. And so, just with that in mind, you're constantly having to zoom out into new bubbles of awareness of things that are contributing to the final equation here. That's, that's not just, it's almost, I think it's very easy to cling to, I guess, safety uh, island. That's, that's what we, we know and we're good with. And let's really dissect this. But then it's like, oh, well, if you just zoom out a little bit, you're going to see people getting good gains doing not that. <laughs> so what are you going to do about it? What questions are you going to ask? And to really understand, I think to help us understand that, I do think it'd be kind of, like if I redesigned a college curriculum for you know, fitness, sports performance, whatever, it would be kind of cool if the base, you know, you get your liberal arts and you take your base classes, but what if they were like cooking, music theory, you know, history of education. Actually, I, I found the history of education very interesting when I, I was doing like PE for like a year or half year, you know, and I took that and that was interesting, but, or like, yeah, Nassim Taleb and heuristics and logical, you know, fallacies and things like that. What if we started there? learning about the history of the education system yeah. sounds like a really good way to make yourself angry. <laughs> it was. Yeah, no, it was good. I mean, it was it was I was actually like really because a lot of it, they just talked but about did it restore your faith. Were you it, like, it oh, did. It, well, I was like, at least people were talking about this for this class. They were talking about people were arguing about why are we keeping kids in school past age 16 when they could be entering the workforce and learning skills, you know, like why do we and at least this here in America and, and we talk about this. And I don't want to get too far off the rails here, but I think there is a lot. No, of, this was precisely yeah. when I was finishing high school in Australia. They introduced a law and it changed the year I got into 10th grade where you could you used to be able to leave school and just do whatever you want. Yeah. You could only leave school. The idea is you leave school early to engage with some sort of apprenticeship. And most yeah. people did, but some people would just leave school. And then they introduced the rule where you had to have an apprenticeship teed up 
or otherwise you just had to stay in and complete the whole lot of high school. But then and, and again, I was in the generation where mum and dad just assumed that if I went to uni, it was just a job factory. Mm-hmm. And just like, you know, it's not necessarily the case anymore. Whereas back in their generation, it's like, oh, if you went to uni, it's just like, Six figure city, sort of. Yeah, it was. Yeah, cost cost a lot less back then. Yeah, pumping them out. (laughs) Yeah, diploma mill city now. (laughs) Yeah, whereas like all the people that left school and got a trade, they all have like two houses now. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, that's yeah, that's where like yeah, just going back to that like yeah, say age sixteen. Yeah, if you nowadays, if you did, if just think about how much better situation a lot of people would be at age you know twenty five, twenty seven, twenty eight. If they age sixteen, they're already learning a skilled trade and. They're pro- they're relatively going to be killing it compared to a lot of people. But anyway, <laughs> I want to yeah keeping things back and more in the scope of a little bit more fitness. And now I don't even know where I was going. I just think about music and I, I do talking about CrossFit. Oh yeah, CrossFit. I was gonna. I would like to get to that because I think I had a question. Uh, I'll save that for a little bit later. But I know like for you too. I mean, I, I mean, you have a big background in like music. You do surfing. Yeah, I'm. I'm just curious too, a little bit about your like balance with things. I think maybe what are some things, or in your perspective, what are some things that help you to keep? I think people who you know have follow your work, you have a pretty laissez-faire attitude towards. I mean, you don't. Let's just say you don't take things super seriously in the sense that you you do, but you don't. You know what I'm saying? Like you're able to to detach that part of it from it. That's so, what I hope comes across. Yeah, at least you, you've you've presented that to the world. So, anyways, I, mean, I was curious about some things from your um, through surfing or other interests that you feel like have helped you to kind of maintain that ability. Honestly, like in terms of how I train people and influencing my training systems, uh, it's more been like the cooking side of things, my interest in economics, and my interest in music, where the real like how to approach systems, like the balance between art and science surfing for me as much as it is it is like a weird sort of creative sport in its own way it's just the a lot of my uh job now is like you know i'm a content creator essentially first and foremost even my paid for educational content so the only time i can get away from my phone or laptop really as much as i can go hang with my mates i'll still have my phone uh with me but if i go for a surf it's just like i'm completely away from everything and detached not that it's bad like i love being able to work from mobile that's just the price that you have to pay but surfing is just like the perfect cure to that but just like but then the shit thing about the bad that's thing okay. about surfing is i'm just like out there floating with the dolphins and the waves talking to my mates and it will sort of spark some ideas and i will have some ideas whether it's for content whether it's for a client's program or something like that and it'll be out of my head by the time i come in from the ocean <laughs> because like speaking to the toxic side of my relationship with my phone i'll take my phone into the shower like religiously because just when i'm in the shower like i think just change of environment sometimes just triggers creative mm-hmm. thought processes or something anything like that and i'll have ideas pop into my head while i'm in the shower and i'll lose them if i don't have my phone yeah but then i'm like oh that's kind of bad like i'm just attached to that thing but it's just worth it at the, at the moment yeah no, I, I hear you i mean i've one of the things i've gotten pretty fond of is the just it's, i'm so behind the times on this it's like just the voice record notes instead of like because i used to just like have to write everything down i'd text myself like a note if i was thinking about in the car or something like that and then as soon as i stopped i'd be like all right i'll, I'll quick text myself this note or something like that but these days i do yeah just like a lot of voice recordings but it is like you said it is it's almost like the dream world or when you're sleeping is kind of when everything kind of settles sometimes all, all ideas can kind of settle and if you're always on and you're always kind of in a more of a high alert state, then stuff just doesn't really get to settle and realign itself. And for me, the 
the best times for that have either been just training myself or a lot of times it's in more of the free-flowing warm-up portion of workouts. And that's where with cooking too, like I, I won't say I'm a good cook, but I'm definitely a better cook than I am a baker because baking is very much about being very good at following directions and I am not good at following directions explicitly. And even like, like I like, it's like, all right, I'm going to make hamburgers. I got this meat. I got these. I got some Worcestershire sauce. I got some garlic. I got some, you know, mustard. And I never do the same when I cook. It's like, I, it's like, I almost never want to do the exact same thing. Every time I want to experiment with it a little bit, see what it smells like, you know, and it's but the uh, big rocks are there. Yeah. The, yeah, the, you know the main, yeah, the main the adjustments within that. It's yeah, all the same. Yeah, I'm gonna put it. I'm gonna put it on at basically the same heat each time. Like that. That thing. You can't. You know, if I. Hey, I'm gonna go at 500. You know, 600 degrees this time, and then I'm gonna go at like 250. Then, like, I'm not gonna. That's that's too much of a. You know, there are some stable rocks in terms of the process, but like the smaller the smaller pieces in the introduction, I guess you could say, where you can and get real time feedback too. Like in terms of that element of things. That's. And maybe, I don't know, maybe there's some parts of cooking that are a little bit different like that that can allow for more. Like, I feel like making burgers allows for a ton of creativity, you know, because you can always put a little bit different versus there's other things that you probably can't, you know, de- That's that whole medium is the message thing. Again, that's another principle I sort of talk a lot about in my education thing. It's just like, you know, no matter what you put between those buns, it's still a burger to people. Yeah. And it's like, you know, that's something that transcends into fitness as well. Like the medium is the message. Yeah. And again, that's why Twitter's a shit show. Like, why would you expect Twitter to be a place where there's healthy opinions? <laughs> yeah. But the burgers, yeah. It's designed to be a swamp. People could just put barbecue sauce on the burger and drown out the, you know, drown out whatever you did anyways. <laughs> I, I definitely, I hear you, man. I was thinking too, I, I like, um, I'm curious, you're, you know, with even the process of training, and maybe this is where fitness and play is different too, is I, a lot of the ideas I get from like training, it's not so much like if it's like meat and potatoes, you know, you're going to do four sets, eight squats today, four sets, eight bench. Like there's not a lot of lightning bolts that are going to hit you in that type of thing. But if I'm setting up like, like a game type thing for athletes to warm up with, or just doing things that are a little bit more creative, it's, it does seem that's where a lot of ideas do come in. So yeah, that's, I mean, that's definitely, maybe that's part of the reason I've taken so fondly to a little bit more loose type warm up situations than you know, just, I mean, I get, I will say too, like watching, you know, watching athletes just do typical exercises. I think there's always something to observe for sure that can definitely get creative potential going, but it's almost like even within training, having something that's a little bit more on the art side of the spectrum, a little bit more on the more foundational side of the spectrum. You always have to have something, even um, Paul Cater, who's probably the most, like he does painting, you know, as, as a hobby very well. And he, he still comes back to a solid foundation like rock. He, he has a written sets and reps of the strength stimulus at the end, but the whole lead up to that is completely improvised pretty much every single session. <laughs> so that's like maybe the more extreme end of it. But I'm curious, do you any thoughts on that within the training session itself for you? Like how you like intuition versus things that you have written down? Yeah, and that's just the hu- like humanizing training and making it more palatable. And I think it's it's because this has been a big subject of debate on Instagram lately. Like, you know, some people are saying like play is way too much of a thing in the current S and C meta, and training is just devolved into a shit show. And I can see how that's true if you were starting off in S and C. Now, not that these are the people that have this opinion, but this is where it's very true. As a new coach coming into strength and conditioning, I don't know if the first sort of topic that you should be hammering down is like, how do we engage with play with our athletes? It's like, mm-hmm. let's learn all that boring stuff first, but then make that palatable. 
with the play and then it just supercharges it. Like when you have that balance of like some semblance of a system and a consistent stimulus and like you're actually doing some weights, you're actually doing some pliers, you're actually doing some sprints, but then you also have like managed to find a way to make a competitive environment and engage with all those biopsychosocial aspects of training. And even I understand a big part of gamifying training is also trying to bring uh, problem solving, high level problem solving, I guess I would call it, into the SNC equation, which is like something that could potentially be useful. But yeah, I see both sides of that debate because I see some people train. I'm like, this is utter garbage. Like, <laughs> you're just making it up on the fly. There's no system. They're not actually getting stronger. They're not getting faster. Like, you're not measuring enough things. But then I see other stuff that's just so data driven, so dry, so mm-hmm. clinical, so boring, so just like ripped out of a textbook, with no personality or no real like uh, personalization for the person, like thought of sympathy for the person (laughs) who has to go through it. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're right. I think that sometimes it's easy to take for granted, like the play-based stuff. Cause for me, I, I trained through very traditional, you know, A, B, C, D or A1, B1, you know, like warmups for 10 years until I started doing improvisation in the warmup. So I had, 10 but i think you know if i would go back to when i first started it's like hey Joel, just, two years is probably good yeah just 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 the very you know year one hey joel just just play you know just that's it you know i i, I don't think i would have progressed the way i do these days when i do warm-up type activities i'm not even thinking about it like it's always i'm always trying to drive novelty drive attention but it's always in context of stuff that i've used for a really that's long a big time. opportunity for him <laughs> in the program because like we're looking for opportunities to inject novelty in the program to maximize the fun or cognitive engagement aspect of it and the warm-up's the perfect time to play around with novelty like you don't want to be doing that with like your main strength work as much i think you can mix it up like in some sense a squat is a squat but then it is probably worth doing the same type of squat a couple of weeks in a row some of the time yeah i i do think even too- like yeah with the warm-up it's just like go for the toolbox yeah, even too, I, I think about it's almost like like if you have the the bubbles of importance, like you have like novelty and fun is almost like a an inner circle. But then if you zoom out, the greater one is attention. You know, like and I think what drives people's attention, like for me, I, I mean, it's mostly things that are fun, but occasionally things that suck. Because also things that suck also drive attention. <laughs> yeah, I remember I when I trained with tommy john down in san diego about three four years ago the warm-up was like hey you're gonna do the very first thing stand there and do a hundred hip circles where basically i'm standing on my left leg and my right leg i'm spinning my right leg around a circle a hundred times in front of me then go a hundred times the other way then go to the right like literally it was twelve twelve hundred movements and it took me 10 minutes like but that drives attention. It sucks, but it drives attention because partly because it sucks. Here, the, the discomfort of it is driving attention, but it's not hurting you. If you it can just create sucks. a workout with a reputation, that's <laughs> definitely one way of making hard work. I don't know if fun's the right word, but I know what you mean. Like they will like engage with it. Um, but even to what you were talking about before, just that stereotypical prescription, like a three by ten or a four by eight. That's something I've really been pulling back on recently and like not going full yeses one by twenty, but just sets like two by eight, two by 12, two by six, whatever the rep range is, but just two hard working sets. Because I think something that we take for granted is just attention span. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, we're trying to play around with all these physiological stimuli, but like we know low volume training can work. And I think it really matches up with the TikTok attention span. <laughs> yeah. Four sets of eight is a, a fair bit of cognitive engagement. And then a bunch of sets of a bunch of other exercises, it's just like, I think, it's a better hedge to lean on the lower side of 
actually make sure it's stimulative. But again, I think the training ends up being more stimulative because it's a lot less of an ask cognitively to smash out two genuinely hard sets, even if you have to crank up the relative intensity. Yeah. yeah I think a lot of people are just cranking out mindless sets. Yeah. And again, it's not, I'm not talking about like an eight by eight. I'm talking about like a, a four by eight, even for some people is too much. Not everyone. Some people love that. Yeah. Some people who just are okay with that more like just, I don't know, they, they could just grind it out and they like that. They can be certainly okay with it. I, I think about even back to music though, like other industries, other elements, you look at like major minor scales in music. Like, and I think about like the half step, whole step, like you can't just keep taking steps up. It gets boring. <laughs> if you take like, you know, four steps up in a row, eventually it's like a half step. You know, there's something that fundamentally changes in the progression to keep it from just being boring. And I think, yeah, I, I, I'm definitely in that same boat in the sense that I do, I tend to try to have a very fun, immersive attention driving lead up into something that is like almost like the crescendo. Like this is the crescendo set of the whole thing where this whole workout, like you call it the whole quest, the whole challenge comes to fruition. And I, my goal is to get for that set to be appropriately challenging, or maybe it's a jumper sprint or whatever, but it's, it's that it's an output driven thing. And my goal is to use the whole warm up to basically make this last set the challenge that's going to be hard for you, but I know you can hopefully do it and have a smile on your face that you, you know, you warmed up to this, you had a quest to get there, it was challenging, you did it, you know, and then we'll get to the cool down or whatever. So versus like just doing like, yeah, like four sets of eight, not that that couldn't, you know, deliver a dice physiological stimulus. I just think it, it just gets, it just gets boring, you know, over time, but I guess it, it, there's a lot of factors in there. Can't think of a rep range, five by five, four by eight, three by 10. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas, yeah, now more reflexively, and again, it is part of a system like, for me now, like more on, erring on the side of like three sets is like the higher volume. Again, thinking about people who are training for multiple qualities simultaneously and trying to make strength training fit into the program and actually be stimulative. But then again, it's so easy for strength to take up the whole program. Yeah. You know, two by 10. Yeah. Two by eight, two by 10 has been a huge, it's like one by 20, right? But it's like, just cut it in half and it's just, you know, two by, there's a lot that can, <laughs> you look at like the old, like super training you know, book and just talk, it talks a lot about three by 10. It's like, this is, it is funny. Cause it's like, you know, we, here we are, I don't, you know, at 20 years after that book came out, but you know, 40, 50 after the DeLorme system or 60, I don't know, God knows how many years after the DeLorme system. And it's like, yeah, still, still relevant you know it's just it's just how do you how do you frame it how does everything else in the program unfold itself and i don't want to do a set of 20 hard sports yeah well but i'm into it i'm into i'm pro yeses like i have played around with it. i think there's a lot of gold in there for a lot of people there's think- just a lot of people who still don't know about it as much as it's a cliche to some people these days I wanted to take a quick break from the show and let you know if you haven't heard already about my online course elastic essentials If you're curious what my training program, my philosophy is, the outlook that I have on the process of training an athlete and maximizing the elastic outputs, all the things a human being does, sprint, throw, jump, cut, how do we maximize those things and how do we center a training program around it? And you'll definitely want to check out my online course. You can find it on justflysports.com. Head to the bright banner on the right that says Elastic Essentials. The course is worth CEUs for the NSCA, NASM, and others, and I think you'll really enjoy it. Coaches have loved it. They've said they'd pay over twice what they did for it, and there's a ton of info in there. Really proud of it, and I know you'll love it. So 
when you get a chance, go ahead and check that out. Elastic Essentials on just flysports.com. All right, let's get back to the show. Yeah, actually, I want to get to some of the, or move into what we were talking about from more of, um, I wanted to move into a little bit more of the uh, lifting and some of the posterior chain and center of mass type concepts too. So you, you've had some posts that, I mean, they're really interesting, like in the sense of, I mean, I think we all, there's always the pendulum, right? We're all aware of like, we can go far to one side of the pendulum or the other. But at the end of the day, like just looking at all the ways the body can move, ways to keep ourselves in balance. You've posted a little bit about um, the knees behind the toes, uh, such as like doing a lunge with the front shin extended. So you're more on your heel or things like that uh, as a visual for people. So I'm curious, you know, knees behind toes. What is, uh, I think everyone, you know, knees over toes, uh, that's going to be obviously quadriceps type stimulus. Uh, what's happening when we do knees behind toes from muscle, alignment, rib cage, all that kind of thing? And that's exactly where it's coming from. It's just like, hey, where's the knees behind toes? Like, surely that's just as important because everyone loves posting all those photos all over social media. Oh, look at all these knees over toes <laughs> positions. It's just like, yeah, ab- and absolutely. I'm not a knees over toes denier. That happens. But then you have a look at all these baseball athletes, like all these surfers, like there are so many sports, pretty much every sport at some point you're going to have to produce a big, powerful negative shin angle. And there's a variety of contexts. Like there's a difference between a penultimate step where you try to roll through the heel versus like creating a block leg, whether it's like a split jerk or whether it's like uh, someone throwing a baseball. Um, so there's a variety of contexts. But in again, exposing athletes to both of those contexts in some sort of a loaded sense. Um, and like I said, both of those where I like to do a lot of split cleans with athletes to develop that block leg sort of quality. And again, it's not going to directly carry over, but we're just looking for things like somewhat similar to prepare our, our athletes for the demands of what they're actually doing out there in their game. Uh, but then also a lot of drills, I really love, like again, producing a negative shin angle with a split squat, keeping the center of mass relatively upright and actually lifting the toes and lifting the forefoot off and like, again, loading it and just rolling across that calcaneus. Because again, so many people just have really stiff ankles and I think it just brings back a nice amount of ankle mobility. And again, just from a sensory perspective as well, so many people just never experience just weight in their heels. And that's really, really important, again, for any sort of early stance or real wind up actions or, you know, just that whole being able to flex the system. Yeah, to be able to like, flex everything and get down into that squatty squat position which triple flexion just as important as triple extension you need to be able to get into your heels the way i saw it again the cool thing about knees over toes was there were a lot of people who were still afraid of that movement but the way i saw the current training meta is people actually already training a lot of that really shoved forward position where all the weights in your toes and if anything was missing from the current training system, other than just not worrying about the knees over toes position, being like, okay, it is safe. It was like pulling people back into the heels and more exposure to that position. Not that it's any secret source. I just feel like it's a common sense perspective. It's just like, yes, positive shin angles and negative mm-hmm. shin angles. I created the perfect system. And it's also out of just a, a love of, I think, Terry and Bar. Just he got me on the shin angles. I was like, what is this guy talking about? He's just like, shin angles, shin angles, shin angles. But I'm like, oh, it's just such a, like, how do you describe athleticism? They can produce just like all of these crazy shin angles without falling on their face. And it allows them like you can push or you can fall to generate mm-hmm. some momentum before you then go to push. And I just applying that a little bit in the weight room and be like, am I exposing this person to like enough movement literacy where I can help them engage with being able to produce more shin angles? And again, in the weight room, that's really helpful from an athletic developing athlete's perspective when you have someone who's just like, 
illiterate and just moves like absolute crap. Obviously, good athletes. It's more just about exposure to relevant positions that you can probably already get into. Yeah. Um, Sorry, that was a big rant. I don't know. That's okay. I, you know, one thing you said tripped something in my brain and it was um, basically like a roll versus a block. I think the vast majority of when we get into like a, a negative a negative shin angle. So like if I'm like high jumping or jumping off one leg and I have to plant in front of my hips and it's going to be heel first and then roll to the foot, like I'm going to be rolling through my hips will go, uh, come forward over the top. Uh, or even if I'm doing like a walking lunge, you know, and maybe it's not a negative, maybe it's a perpendicular to the ground shin or a vertical shin, but I'll, I'm stepping and rolling over that. But then you had mentioned like catching a, a split jerk. That's where you you aren't rolling over it. You're just holding and maintaining. And I was thinking, well, what other athletic, where would that show up athletically? Probably maybe some change of direction situations, you know, depending on the angle that you're cutting. I mean, a lot of times you're still going to have to steer a shin down into a positive angle to actually come out of a cut and move. But, you know, there might be some some off-leg situations and that type of thing. So, this, so that being said, I, I think about like... Sometimes I think like, well, the nothing new under the sun principle, like physical education, right? You're doing duck walks for like that, like knees over toe. Like if you just do like a duck walk where you squat down and walk like, you know, walk in a squatty position, you're getting the classical, like your knees to go under your toe. It's more quad. You're getting into that. If I'm doing maybe a, a lunge with a wide angle or a reverse lunge, I'm just trying to think about how this happens naturally or what I'm saying. I, this is what I'm asking, I guess, is what specific benefit? Would there be to more the block type training? You know what I'm saying? Where it's it's like you're doing the lunge, but you're not perpendicular. Like you're actually, your shin is swung out even more forward. So you're like on your heel. What stimulus or what part of that stimulus do you think is particularly valuable? And who would really benefit from, because everyone has, is probably familiar with the split squat. Like I'm in a lunge position. I'm just going up and down. What, but again, that's much closer to mimicking the rolling through. Just to yeah. sort of go with you there. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So yeah. Let, yeah. Tell me a little bit about how you see those distinctions in terms of uh, basic human abilities, needs, and those type types of elements. We got it back into it initially. Me and my boys, the GPP crew. Shout out, <laughs> Keen O'Brien. Oh, Will Rattel is also someone who's played around with these a lot. And part of it is okay. So we love Olympic lifting because again, we just enjoy it. Yeah. I think it's good for developing athletes. Well, let's bring back the split clean. Again, they don't do it much in competitive weightlifting, but still a useful variation for athletes. And again, it's another tool in the toolbox, but it's actually a good exercise. But then if you're looking for a specific application, it's sort of fallen into a secondary strength slot or ballistic slot for some throwing athletes, uh, working mm. with some baseball pitches. Again, a lot of throwing athletes, they've sort of got a, I think it's an Adarian barism. Is it run the bike into the curb? That's I'm not how sure. I coach it anyway. I, I, I maybe you just said it one time off the cuff. It might not have been him, but again, I just think it was such good visual for like what we're trying to do with a good block leg. Not that you're always trying to tumble over it, but it just is that thing like just crashing something into a wall. Create okay, again. He talks. About, I guess it's just about creating collisions. But yeah, bullish on that. And like I said, most of what it is, I think the real because that's not really early stance. Again, early stance qualities are those really yielding qualities, big penultimate sort mm -hmm. of steps, and again rolling across that heel. That's the sort of stuff I find myself engaging with more. And another one that's it's not a true negative shin angle. It's just one that's a relative negative shin angle. It's just when people can plan to flex themselves into the bottom of a real squatty squat, because ultimately that is how you get your butt right down on your ankles. Like you do not dorsiflex hmm. your way 
all the way into the deeper squat, you have to plan a flex. Ah. Where otherwise, it's just a knee bend. Like you get full hip and knee flexion when you plan a flex. Just that last sort of inch or two before the bottom. That sort of was one of my takeaways again, just from like looking at the squat through a gate lens. Again, like very inspired by Pat Davidson. He talks about this idea a lot, like going through starting in toe off in the standing position, middle of the squat sort of looks like mid stance. And again, you get all the way down, plantar flex your way into the bottom. And that's that real early stance position. Yeah. And again, there's a lot of, as much as it is just a really good way of like, okay, can this athlete get into a respectable amount of flexion? It also then leads to a lot of other concepts. Like if I want to talk about the concept of shin angles with my athlete, I can be like, see how now you can dorsiflex your way, like shin angle change your way into hip extension to get up to the middle of a squat. So they're already sort of playing with these concepts in a really simple context. And especially like trying to get someone to, because I'm a big fan of like David Gray and his concepts, like getting people sometimes to delay knee extension with split squats and things like that. I sucked at teaching that. I was really bad at it. Couldn't get anyone to delay knee extension in a split squat. But then teaching people to shin angle change bilaterally out of a really deep squatty squat, goblet squat. Um, Then I was like, okay, now I want you to recreate that on one leg. Someone's given him a bit of external stability as well and found that really helpful. Again, that's not early stance. That's more mid stance. And again, just like another thing that sort of makes me cringe about the knees over toes system is just like, man, like they just go straight past early stance, past mid stance, straight to toe off. I'm like, man, there was so much gold back there. Just like pull up in mid stance for a bit. That's another concept or phase of gait that a lot of people are just really underexposed to. Same way we talk about this PRI thing, like people get a bit too obsessed with it sometimes, especially strength coaches. It's like, just don't be ignorant to the rib cage. And again, people go too far down the gate gate rabbit hole and sometimes stop lifting weights. But it's Mm. like being able to look at lifting weights through a gate lens is really, really useful. Because when I did that, I was like, oh, there's some stuff that's missing. Like the movement library that I put together for this program is not as holistic as I thought it was. Yeah, I, I love the idea of um, the plantar flexing into the bottom. I think we've talked about this on a recent podcast in the sense of the delayed knee extension coming out of the bottom, where the knees are coming forward out of the bottom. But to plantar flex... And it's different whole, as yeah. well to like how you do it in sprinting arms, but it's like conceptually like similar enough, yeah. I think. Well, it just feels more athletic to do it. I think that it's easy to... I mean, there is the, the, the term... Well, and Pat Davidson has said this, and I, I would agree with this. We want our squats squatty and our hinges hingy. But within that squat, there is a little more nuance in that squatty squat, like you're saying. And, and like you said, you got the idea from, from Pat and looking at the squat as per the gait cycle is it does just feel straight up more athletic to let your hips sink back a little bit at the bottom of the squat. And if you treat the squat as a pure accordion, like this, like an accordion just straight up going up and down. I look at that from a lever system perspective. And Darian Barr talks about the levers like class one, class two, class one is like, the kids on the um, the seesaw just going up and down and like doing a calf raise is like a class one lever. It's, it's actually like a slow lever. It's more of a weight room vertical force, just pushing lever. It's a pushing lever, but oh, oh, sorry. But athletic movement is not pushing it. I mean, there is, I guess a sense of push, but the push is generated actually when the ankle turns into more of this like 90 degree, entity where it becomes what you would call a class two lever and it's now has more inherent stiffness to it that you can push off of it with speed and if you just treat everything in the weight room as just pure fold-up accordion you can get stronger but at the same time i don't think it actually lends to the transfer of elastic energy and when you squat the way you're saying to 
you feel the transfer because you get shifts, like your hips are shifting from front to back and you work with it. You're working with, there's still these things you work with in the squat. It's not just all muscle. I'm still working with shifting weight in an athletic manner. So sorry, that's what I was going to say, um, not to interrupt you there. I think it's huge as well. I know people in certain circles, and again, something Darren Barr talks about, and a lot of other people talk about in a different way, is just like moving away from triple extension or this idea of always having to hit full triple extension or just talking about it as if it occurs simultaneously. And again, like you were saying, like people love it. So it's like, yeah, proximal to distal extension, it's like using the body as a whip. Like it's fun to do. And, and again, from a movement literacy perspective, like an idea that's really important, I think, for a lot of athletes, a concept to understand is how you dorsiflex your way into hip extension through mid-stance. And again, some people just refer to it as shin angle change in the Hartman PRI system. They talk about it as mid-stance. But again, both of these systems that have essentially no relation to each other, this is why I like, like just getting around all these fitness mm-hmm. systems and seeing like, what are the common threads here? And again, there are a lot of systems sort of preaching things that line up with this idea of like, oh, okay, triple extension, nah, it's not quite that. Again, it's proximal distal extension or it's delaying knee extension or again, yeah, or just using the body as a whip. Yeah, it's it's a thing where it's so easy to become too generalist, you know, like it's like you're just saying, oh, triple extension. Well, how about the when? <laughs> you know, like, I, And I don't know, maybe you did get to like- And that's the missing yeah, link that yeah. it helps you play with, like timing and rhythm, because there's an amount of time that these muscles take to contract. Again, those bigger, more proximal tissues take a lot more time to produce force. So like you need that, yeah. but then you can play with the amount of distal extension. Yeah, and, and those muscles fire a lot quicker. And that helps you play with timing and rhythm. And that's sort of, again, the missing link between the weight room and sport often. But again- just being able to engage with proximal to distal extension a little bit, I think, is just a useful thing to sort of have there somewhere in your lifting. Yeah, I like that too. Even yeah, thinking about that with that squat where you're there's there's timing and and then that timing is even even in Olympic pole, it's even more. And that's the thing where too, I think you know, if I look at my like my history that's helped me to understand this better is anyone who's done Olympic lifting knows that if you have that just kind of crappy one pole lift like you could get the bar up but it's not nearly as athletic that's not going to transfer to athletic outcomes as much as actually having a legit second pole and in unpacking that second pole there's delayed knee extension in there so there's timing it's it's not just that you got the bar to your shoulders and hit the nice pretty position with your elbows forward that for some reason anyone whether they know much about the olympic list or not that's what everyone says initially but that doesn't mean anything what matters is how you generated the speed that got that bar to that position. And yeah. weightlifters at the start of the second pull look exactly like a sprinter in mid stance. Yes, 100%. One of the most pivotal conversations that made me get outside my box when I was just obsessed with strength sports for a brief period was when my brother got into track and field. He had a really good track coach, Roger Fabry. And I was just talking to Oscar. I was like, what have you learned about sprinting? Because he was like, man, I've never felt the wind in my hair when I run before. Like, this is different. I was running before. Now I know how to sprint. And I was like, tell me what are some of the things you've learned? He's just like, all right. So when you're sprinting, you don't go as fast as possible from your first step. Because again, Oscar's terrible sprint. has never been known how to sprint in his life. And like he had to have that explained to him. It's like, no, you meant to build momentum. Like it's about establishing a rhythm. It's like, yeah, you don't want to waste too much time, but you're not meant to be going your top speed after two steps unless you Joel Seaman. Sorry, that was unnecessary. <laughs> um, and I was like, oh my God, that's exactly the same as weightlifting. Like something that I thought was so unrelated. But again, it's the same thing in weightlifting. Like you're not going, everyone's like, oh, it's such an explosive movement. But 
Olympic lifts from the floor, absolutely. It's like there's a very small part of the lift that's explosive and fast. The rest is just this big wind up from the floor. And it's not until you're at the mid thigh that you're actually trying to move quick. And again, it's like just the smallest part of the lift that's actually quick. But again, just this concept of like trying to develop a rhythm, not trying to go as fast as possible from the get go. Yeah. I was just like, oh man, there's so much overlap here. And that was before I even went down the gate rabbit hole. I was like, oh, it's all literally the same joint actions, basically. Jeez. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I love um, just the idea of like, if we almost unpack too, it's like if we're going to make that course, uh, redefine that that university course on exercise or whatever, and you have a lot of the different ways of thinking, it's almost like even before you get into exercises, talking about, like you said, proximal to distal, like surges. I like the idea of surges. How is the force surging through this movement? Not just, did you get, again, I, it's so easy to get into end positions, but it would be kind of cool too to look at people running the like 100 meter 40 yard dash and and then if those people also do Olympic lift and if you were able to give them a score, you know, Olympic lifting based off their ability to generate strength off the floor and then transmute that into the quickness in the whip and then maybe look at as well their, um, how they you know got themselves through the initial stages of the sprint. Were they able to get the you know, appropriate rhythm to begin. I mean, you definitely can't spin your, if you're just spinning your wheels like the Tasmanian devil, you're going to run out of gas later in the race. You know, you don't want to like over lengthen early as well. I think it was even someone had mentioned even Marcel J- Jacobs actually improved his time in the 60 by actually cutting steps in his first, I don't know, 20 or 30, because he was like so long for a little bit. But you can't be, there's a lot of people who get their 40 faster by like, they're just team sports and all they do is spin and they do need to learn to have a little more like lengthened lengthening of those steps in that surge as well so there's that fine tuning but i i would be curious of if there was any correlation or you know if i went back and being a strength coach for track on the university level just watching people's you know rhythm like the people who just whip through the first phase it's all one speed you know and then go watch them do starts and it's like yeah it's all one speed here too there's no sense of surge there's no sense of rhythm or surge here too I, i would be curious to see that interplaying correlation as well yeah, and that's it. There's that nice overlap there with, again, just in sprinting, a lot of athletic context, and, and Olympic lifting. Like You are just really focusing on like using your body like a whip. And again, I find it so universal. Like You can even look at weightlifters, like Olympic weightlifters, and be like, this is a relatively frontside dominant weightlifter or backside dominant weightlifter. Again, just depending on how like shoved forward they are. And again, like the same way people have excessive backside mechanics in sprinting sometimes, like it looks the same in weightlifting. Again, you just leap off the ground too much, spend too much time in the air, as much as we do want to be floating. Like, you know what I mean? Some people sort of just try to bounce off the ground a little bit too much. Yeah. It's like it's still trying to stay close to the ground. Yeah, same in weightlifting. Like so many weightlifters like soft knees. Like they st- most yeah. weightlifters, like they're not even willing to accept that truth yet. Like they're so married to triple extension, way more than the track guys. It, it does say, you know, as, just to bring this full circle too, you know, back to like the lunge even or with the heel, like a little heel bias and the shin forward is I feel like people who do rush, they rush the first pull in the clean. Those people, people tend, when I like watch them just squat, they tend to be very, get in a late stance real quick. They tend to be more late stance dominant type individuals with a little bit less access of like, even I guess you could say ability of doing an RDL, which I was going to ask you, or like a single leg RDL, like I was going to ask you about that as compared to a lunge. But it does seem like people who struggle with, I guess you could just say the knees behind toes ability in general, do tend to struggle with that rhythm off the floor of an Olympic lift. I'm sure you could compensate your way around. Yeah, because they're not comfortable with a negative shin angle. Yeah. 
just want to get out of it. Like again, as much as you folded forward there, like so many people, again, it's just like they cannot pull themselves back enough. Like you're trying to stay back, stay slow and stay back in that weightlifting. And again, it's this, this yielding sort of quality to it. As much as there's a force production aspect of it, it's like, no, no, it's relatively yielding because you're not really dropping the hammer yet. Going to wait till that constraint's cleared your knees, and then your shin angle change again, boom, mid stance. And that's the most important thing. Like the amount of toe off, it's like that's where the timing and rhythm, you can play with that. Some people need a lot. What's his name? The Bulgarian kid. Oh, I'm not going to talk about it. He just, he won Euros, mm. set a world record. Yeah. Again, he, he extends the hell out of his knees, but he also looks like he's doing a backflip when he's doing a clean and jerk. <laughs> again, just breaks all the rules that all the weightlifting coaches talk about. Like finish upright. But Carlos Nassar, sorry, that's it. Yeah. 18 years old. Inject 221 or 222 kilos. At wow, Jeez, that's insane. It makes me you wonder though what their trajectory will be long term. Though you know, like if you're missing that, the same way you're missing any you know potential skill, like how far can you go with just that? That I don't He's know. Still, maybe- shin angle changes like crazy, and he again, if we want to go down the compression expansion rabbit hole. He looks like a real narrow ISA. Like he might not actually be, relatively speaking, for a weightlifter. He is. He has muscles. Don't get me wrong, but he's a bit on the lankier side. And again, he does just he produces like such a good negative shin angle off the ground. And again, bit weird. His shin angle change does exist, but it's not. It's a bit of a weird mid stance. Like gets onto his toes real early, but then his toe off is just insane. What do you think about? So I'm just trying to look at the lens too of. So like doing a split squat with the heel or the the front heel farther forward in front of the knee than it much typically would be. What do you think about doing things like um, like a reverse lunge? Like I think a lot of times a reverse lunge has been highlighted as something that's much more like earlier mid stance dominant and that the shin might not get to that position, but you're still kind of, and maybe that's more where there's the block, right? We talked about the- I love the it. Blo- yeah, yeah, I think that's great. I, I like rolling. Like I said, I just like having some of the rolling across there. That's probably just because I have really stiff ankles and I enjoy the mobility gains, yeah. but also reverse lunges. You can get great negative shin angles there. Uh, a lot of people do a better job of keeping their center of mass a bit upright as well. Not yeah. that falling forward is bad, but again, a lot of people in every loaded context, they're just folded over. They can't do anything with a decent amount of load without just folding. Yeah, it'd be interesting to, you know, the reverse lunge has been a favorite of mine for a while, especially the more I get into the the early stance, mid stance, late stance, the PRI stuff. I feel like it's the, it's almost like if you think about things that you have to coach the least, like if I watch someone squat and they're just super late stance, I'm like, you know, feel your heels on the way down for the 20th time, you know, like <laughs> versus, I don't just go do, just go do some reverse lunges. And it, you'd think most of it would happen automatically. It, you do see some hesitancy on those sometimes, like people do a little mini step at the top or something if they can't, you know, get that big roll into the, that reverse position. But I always just think there's, um, there, it's, it's interesting to see that. One thing I do as well that I'd be curious what your take on this, I call them crescendo lunges i got this idea from i mean it's like a sprint buildup and rob Assis has talked about like crescendo bounding like start with small bounds and build up the length and i do i do that with lunges a lot just almost as a tester to see where people can get and and they, i say all right start with a short lunge like an easy small lunge and every lunge you're gonna step a little bit farther and i kind of see how far they can get before it just you know everything just kind of falls apart or they're or they're just forcing it but that's something i i do too a little bit just to see and I guess you, you, but even a forward lunge, you're never going to really get, you can't forward lunge and be. I'm split squatting most of these. Yeah, Whenever I'm really trying to play around with the gate concept, like in an intricate sort of way, I'm typically doing something relatively stationary, especially mm. if they just can't wrap their head around it. 
Yeah. What do you think about like, I don't know how far you've explored this, but something like a straight leg bound for sprinting, because that's kind of the same mechanism. You're at least starting, at least the, the, the sediment <laughs> is that the leg is swinging in the front in front of the body. I find that when the foot actually hits the ground in those, people will compensate for where they have the strength. Uh, like if you're a super late stance person and you just have no early stance strength or ankle, ankle stiffness, you do a straight leg bound and your foot hits and the, the people will instantly collapse into more of an instant mid stance, late stance. Whereas people who have more early, they can kind of bounce through it a little bit more. I'm just curious if you've done any like more dynamic iterations of those types of things. Not much, but I'm into it. It's just that hasn't been a big part of my programming. I've yeah. done it. I've tried to practice a few of those straight leg bounds, but I haven't quite nailed them. I'm still sort of building my skill of bounding. And as such, I haven't prescribed any. But that's what I like about viewing this lens. You're like, okay, so this person is just typically their habit is they're just always into their toes. They really struggle to get into the midfoot or any aspect of the rear foot. There are so many things we can do to pull that person back. And it's just about dosing the right amount of exercises where we're actually focusing on staying back into the program. Because people always ask me, like, what exercises do I'm like, hmm. you can put a posterior weight shift in so many different ways. You know what I mean? Like, again, yeah. squatty squats are the biggest one. Laying on your back, reaching your arms forward, going into a bit of flexion. Again, we're just trying to flex the system, generally speaking. Any sort of training in relative flexion, like do some presses without packing your shoulder blades down and back and sticking your chest up. Again, that's an aspect of a posterior weight shift, which, look, obviously, if you're doing that seated, you're not going to, that's not going to improve your ability to coordinate your center of mass over your base support, but it can be an aspect of your programming where you are just working on those qualities that mimic a posterior weight shift. Yeah. So, curious what you think about that compared to like, let's say a single leg RDL, or I'm going to do a single leg RDL, maybe my back foot's on the wall, something like that, you know? And, and we're technically, maybe not from a rib cage to a foot position. I mean, now it's actually the rib cage is actually in front of the foot, technically. <laughs> from a, if you're that's just, like, my, you just yeah. end up pronating. It's yeah. weird. You get the negative shin angle, but they're still pronated as hell. Hmm. I guess it's a negative shin angle. It's perfectly upright. <laughs> that's how I, sorry, we should talk about because some people do genuinely plantar flex when they're going below the knees in an RDL. I coach my athletes to like stay relatively vertical. And again, because it is sort of a variation of, some sort of relatively mid-stance mimicking thing. Again, a lot of pronation. Gotcha. So, so A lot of internal rotation. So, RDLs, it's hard to really get a true early stance is what you're saying or a single leg RDL? It ends up being mid-stance. Yeah, it's just confusing because the shin angle is negative, but you've just, that's just because you've tilted, you're pushing the thorax into the ground instead, mostly. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so the act of tilting my torso forward and putting my ribcage more towards the ground and having all this weight and mass basically over the forefoot, it kind of drags the center of mass back into middle stance. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, it's only through the middle where you need to internally rotate the lower limb so you can keep that backside of the ribcage open. But then again, you end up going back into plantar flexion just to squeeze out that last bit of depth anyway. That makes sense. It is kind of funny. You know, you think about, all right, well, we're going to squat for our quads and RDL for our hamstrings. And yeah, in, in a many senses of the word, that is correct. But then the question is, well, okay, that is generally, again, generally true, <laughs> nuance. Now, when we try to look at that relative to athleticism, it's different because now ribcage position is fundamentally different, like in sprinting or bounding or lunging. It's, it, it's more, so you're saying it would be more of a true early stance in context of a lunge or a split squat where my ribcage is now upright. And because there's not all this mass over my foot, like an RDL, now I really can get more of a true early stance. Is, would that be the an accurate, I guess, summary of, of kind of what you're saying is the difference there? 
Yeah, yeah. It's like, can you actually get back? And can you stay back? And then how can you coordinate that in a variety of contexts? And then how much can I load that to disturb it? Or again, that's just another way of adding complexity to the environment. I guess it's sort of more intensity. Again, it does make it more complicated. Uh, you just play with all those variables like anything. But again, the people who aren't into this gate stuff and the people who make all jokes about it, it's, like, it's just be- about being aware of posterior weight shifts. It's like, oh, hmm. my client has trouble flexing. Like they've just stiffened up after a bit of weight training. It's like, do you ever shift them back? When you're working out and again the way a lot of people train is chest up shoulders back everything's mm-hmm. just been driven forward simultaneous triple extension again just drives everything forward onto the toes yeah it's not a bad thing a lot of athletic stuff happens on the toes we're just missing this entire other section i'm like there's got to be some value here and that's my whole thing you were making a joke about fads before and like how i try to look for fads because again i want to be a coach that gets attention it comes up with tools to be helpful all I'm looking for is just undervalued stocks. Like, what way is the meta heading? Mm-hmm. It's like, all right, everyone's doing knees over toes. This is the easiest thing ever. I'm like, how about we train negative shin angles? And everyone's just like, this guy's a genius. <laughs> <laughs> no action, no, no. <laughs> it's like, that's what we're always looking for. Just like, what is missing here? Yeah. And again, like that compression expansion lens, as soon as I started looking at weight training through that, I was like, oh my God, there's all this like really useful stuff that we're just not doing. And, and again, most of it comes into like just loading people in more relatively flexed orientations. Yeah. Yeah. And just being like, okay, a rib cage exists. I'm going to put it in a few different shapes just for different exercises, just for the sake of like making them strong in all these different positions. And that's going to facilitate all these different phases of stance as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, just just again going back to how you talk about that with the the rib cage position over the foot and what adaptation that'll bring about. I mean, I don't I don't think the RDL is a bad exercise by any means, but funny enough, it's just I kind of it's it's actually it has kind of disappeared from my program a little bit in the in the sense of and it just with just sprinting and jumping and athletic locomotion as an outcome, not and not even like yeah, not like Olympic lift assistance or anything else like that. And I think about, but I do program Olympic lists relatively often in my programming. So in some sense of the word, you're getting an explosive RDL or even like I'll do kettlebell swings and things like that. Especially from the hang. Like you're going to get some really solid eccentric loading through a hamstring, hang cleans and things like that. I'm just sitting here questioning now, would I be RDLing if increasing my Olympic lifting wasn't a priority? I'm trying to think. Yeah, that's yeah. For me, it's, I don't know it's, if I would. Yeah, I'd be. I'd really be curious to your answer there, because this, yeah, for me, for just the sake of pure speed, pure sprinting, jumping, all those outcomes. I, I mean, I, I'll say I, I haven't done an RDL, and I haven't programmed an RDL or done one in a really long time. And I maybe you know maybe like some single leg. I will do like just for the sake of just general warm up. Like I do a lot of single leg, like rhythmic single leg RDL type stuff. Um, but I, I, I guess I think, well, I mean, the RDL didn't, you know, the RDL didn't really get, I guess you could say invented till what was it like the eighties or something like that or the history of that. But I, yeah, I guess if you're, you're doing Olympic lifting, you know, you're doing all the lunging, reverse lunging, you're training the stance, mid stance, you're sprinting. I, uh, you know, I guess it's that, that's what my question is being is validating, still having it in the program. If I'm doing all the other things and it's not strength, isn't the, the, the highest outcome of it all. I'm not deadlifting though. That's sorry. That's a huge caveat that I need to bring up. It's when like RDLs are very, again, still a great option for a lot of people, especially pure strength athletes. But adding in RDLs as your secondary deadlift, like that's it's a lot of fatigue you're generating in the program. And that, and that's the thing. I will never have Olympic lifts, RDLs, and deadlifts in my programming at the same time. 
It's just too much. Yeah, maybe that's where for me, if the Olympic lifts are my program, like they're already you like two or thought. three of those, like deadlift and an ollie lifter and RDL and an ollie lifter, any sort of combination, even deadlift and RDL. Again, that's still like pretty hectic for a lot of people. Yeah, it's like how many, it's always easy to put more. Like it's always easy to be like, all right, we're going to deadlift, we're going to RDL, we're going to clean, we're going to do kettlebell swings. I'm like, man, I mean, your hinge is, your hinge game is going to be strong. <laughs> but I always think about too, like if you kind of almost, I guess maybe the thing, not that I've had anything against RDL. I mean, honestly, I remember when I was doing one by 20 stuff, I do one by 20 RDLs, you know, back, I don't know, however many years ago. And I felt like, yeah, this is my hamstrings are feeling really good on this. I, I, I like this, but I think for me, it was more to get my posterior chain. Would I rather do heavy RDLs or sprinting explosive lunges and cleans or snatches? Like I'd, well, I'd rather do the latter. So maybe it's just kind of a minimalist chipping away from the sake of you know, not, and, and I've also been in the place where my clean, when my power clean was its best, my, in my own career, my jumping and my sprinting and my reactive ability was by, was far and away, not nearly as good. And so I was someone who actually took that stuff too far. So maybe that's why I was a little salty and, you know, narrow ISA too. So maybe I had more shape change or negative adaptations that came with that or whatever. But I, um, not that I'm opposed, I'm always just trying to learn more about it. So if I guess, you know, if I do like an Olympic, when I do programs that don't have Olympic lifts in them, I usually do kettlebell swings instead, uh, instead of RDLs. For whatever reason, I just like kind of like that a little bit more. I mean, it's still an RDL, obviously. <laughs> I'm not saying it's not. It's just not quite as heavy. And that's why, because I get frustrated. There's no compulsory exercises. That's why I get so frustrated with the back squat. And again, the deadlift. Like a lot of people still th- see the big three as compulsory if you're serious about strength training. And Load the hell out of people on single leg work and things like that. Yeah. I think people just get too attached to the bigger number. It is cooler. It's definitely good for clout. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. Clout. <laughs> Without question. I'll tell you, to be honest, because I think my best lift, if you had to, like, back when my more powerlifting, when I did do powerlifting, I would never say I have powerlifting days because I wouldn't consider myself strong enough to be considered a powerlifter. But when I train like that, I can pretty much guarantee you my RDL would have actually been my best lift. Uh, and, and looking at like where my clean numbers were and things like that, I think a lot of it came from the RDL type action of things. But yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, I would have had some, some level of clout. If I wanted to get clout in terms of a lifting max, that would have been the, my best, <laughs> my best chance at it. Without the bumper plates. Yeah. So oh yeah. I just line up. Yeah. I just put a bunch of tens on 10 bumpers on and just like, yeah, get get a little bit of clout there. Um, hey, I do want to ask you as well with, um, so when your knees do, in fact, go over the toes in different lifts. What's your thought on approaching that? Like, you know, people who do want to get stronger quads. I mean, I think where the knees over toes type approach has, you know, it's seen people just push it like as far as possible, push your knee as far as possible over. I mean, what's your take on how far your knee is eventually going forward to get like, you know, it's like the 80-20, right? Or, or you know, where have I gotten the, or 20%, where have I gotten 80% of the adaptations here? You know what I'm saying? In terms of my knees getting strengthened, still being relatively tip, biomechanically, I guess you could say more normal in terms of what you see. And like you mentioned, mid-stance and Olympic lifts, mid-stance, uh, this specific point in the sprint that, or a jump that that correlates with. What's your thought on how to get the most out of when you do push your knees over the toes and keep it relatively biomechanically sound? I think the real value in shoving your knees really far over your toes is like this mobility and just exposure aspect. It's like I, I just think, you know, expose people to positions that they might find themselves in has maybe a likelihood of improving resilience. Mm. I don't like it from just a general weight training perspective because 
again, just you produce force in a bunch of different ways and you can get strong at pretty much anything if you put enough effort into it. But you have a look at any of these people in these really knee-bendy, knees-over-toes moments. As soon as they apply force, the shin angle just flies back. And I think there's something to be said being able to work on extending that hip over a positive shin angle. And we just, we already weren't getting enough of that. So if mm. you just relax and don't go as far knees over toes, it's like go as far as you can, like keep that heel relatively close to the ground, get that whole foot to pronate. And that'll give you a lot of dorsiflexion anyway. And I think that that's, that's in my system, what knees over toes training is, is mid stance, trying to, again, apply force, but maintain a positive shin angle. I do spend some time, again, doing toe-off sort of drills, but again, they're still not really like those big knees over toes movements. And again, I, I put them in there. I just sprinkle them in because I'm like, I need exposure to these positions because I see the photos all over social mm-hmm. media. I'm like, oh, what if one of my ballers goes there? Has a crazy sum? I'm into it. But again, it is mobility. It is resilience. It's not really, again, going into bread and butter strength training. Because again, what you lose when you just explore that range is your ability to produce a lot of force. And that's something that I value for my uh, main strength work. What are your thoughts on? Uh, I really like. Well, I will say too. I really like your thought or the the phrasing on. You need to be robust in extreme ranges. Like you should be able to shove your knee all the way forward because if you're playing a sport, at mm-hmm. some point, that knee is probably going to end up. You know, at least it's if you if you stumbled and took a fall or you did a you get you maybe you're like in a wrestling type situation. I could see it happening a lot. I'm sure there's a lot of situations where your knee could find itself getting shoved forward very quickly. In a rel- I mean, with just your body weight or maybe your momentum behind it. But with that, I do think I go back to like the physical education or like the like the duck walks. <laughs> you know, it's like it's low for it's relatively low force, but just can you walk and move without a lot of weight or just your body weight quickly getting your knees for? Like you should be able to do that, but do you have to, you know, ha- add heavy dumbbells to it? Probably not. You know, <laughs> um, I'm curious on your thoughts too of like it's something I've been playing around with a lot more recently has been an isometric sissy squat because i think about like you said the the impacts on late stance and i guess it would technically be like major late stance but like i i remember i mean i saw jay schrader doing this with clients like a decade ago like where they would be going a sissy squat and just basically take their knees to a few inches off the ground just hold it for however long and i i like doing that i think it's I'm curious what your take is on that in relation to like the gait cycle, um, other things happening. You know, if you wanted to make your quads stronger, you just want, you didn't want to change much with your typical squat program, but you want to make your knees stronger, do some iso sissy squats. I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on that, the mechanics of that and how that fits in the gait cycle type things. That sort of thing for me is something that would always sort of be like a warm up drill or some sort of tertiary movement. It'd mm-hmm. probably never show up in my system as a primary or secondary yeah. exercise. And again, I'll just put my biases on the table. I'm always looking for heaps of mid-stance in the weight room, a bit of early stance. And a bit, a bit of toe. I'm not like, and bit, again, just the thing that I always say is like, just I see so much toe-off. Yeah. And, and, and in a weight room context, it's okay because timing and rhythm don't really matter. Coordination aren't as important. Like good powerlifting squatters, like Russell Orhe delays knee extension and, and expresses some sort of mid-stance, but like you can get away with early knee and elbow extension in the weight room when things are moving a lot slower. And again, the timing of the rhythm coordination doesn't matter that much, but I'm like, man, can we just get some of these concepts in there? So I feel like I sound like a little bit of a broken record, but it really is like the thing that I want to bring everyone back to. It's like, I'm not trying to say toe-off's bad. It's just that that's all there is for so many people. 
Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. And especially especially those people. Like I like the idea of like a lot of mid stance. Like it's almost like a centrist's approach in the weight room. Like mostly mid stance and a little bit of late stance or early stance. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sure people just go into late stance on their own. So maybe you don't need to like intentionally program it. They're probably most people you give a squat to is gonna get into some level of late stance just by how they're wired in the scope of doing the squat, you know. People program a bunch of different joint actions. But what they don't, a lot of people don't focus on is like programming a lot of movements that challenge like the relationship between the center of mass and base support. And as a result of that, as much as coaches write down a lot of different joint actions, like there's different postures that sort of facilitate them in different positions of the center of mass in relation to the base support to facilitate all those relative motions. Uh, and just, yeah, engaging with the, these ideas just makes it so much easier to prepare athletes a bit more holistically, especially from an exercise selection perspective. Yeah. With, with just really quickly with mid stance, I know we've, you know, I, I would recommend anyone listen to the other podcasts we've done to get more into early, mid, and late stance. We've done a lot of those podcasts in the series. But would you say like that middle stance, like like the weight, the center of the weight being more over the middle, you know, the middle arch, middle portion of the put, the, the put, <laughs> the foot, you know, relative to like the forefoot or the heel, would you call that? I think sometimes I think about or a word that's in my head is like home base. Like Bush Exeter talked about like home base training workouts. And I think about, when you go and you sprint and you jump you're gonna get to late stance explosively repeatedly and it's a very important part of that but i think about i've talked about i've thought about eric huddleston talking about like resetting the body like coming in doing more full range of the motion full range of motion like like a hand supported like hatfield safety bar squat stuff like that to me i look at that as more like it's like a home base you're not you're getting away you were just in late stance all game all weekend you know i mean do you view it largely as that like just Let's get to the yeah. the home base in the weight room, and there you go. Sprint, you jump, you do plyos. You're gonna hit that late stance explosively. Is that the, your frame of mind in looking at it? Most of my late stance work is ballistic or plyometric. Again, a little bit of the weight room stuff, especially when we really go full send. Again, you're gonna get some mm-hmm. early knee extension, and and that's sort of the way I chase those qualities. Cool, and that's where you say too. Like an argument for squatting deep would be that too. Like just. Sorry, just quickly as well. I, and oh. I should say, like, the thinking behind that is I like my toe off to be fast. Mm. And no matter how hard you want to extend, crack the whip fast. And again, mm. the what I've been led to believe, reading all my friends' Bosch and stuff like that, is that uh, your knee extensors and your more distal extensor muscles, they can contract and relax a lot quicker. And, and so, again, we can reliably, like, improve those qualities as well, like coach that into people just a little bit, right? Like a lot of people do it intuitively, but some people sort of miss that in certain contexts. Yeah. And again, it just feeds into it. The other way you can explain it, again, just using the body like a whip. Gotcha. Gotcha. Even yeah. when you're moving slowly. Again, even powerlifters do it, extend proximal to distal. Like the, the powerlifters who have the sexy looking squats, and I know it's not a beauty pageant, but Russell Orhe happens to have a beautiful squat and a very strong squat, and he delays knee extension. And again, all the weightlifters, when you look at a weightlifter who's doing a deep, gorgeous squat, again, they maintain the positive shin angle out of the hole. It's just, it's a, and again, people talk about like, oh, people get too obsessed with biomechanics, but I'm like, just have some appreciation for the art of human movement and a beautiful squat. Yeah. Take your dumpster fire of a squat elsewhere. Learn to maintain <laughs> the shin angle. Probably better a mass. Yeah. That's, that's as much it. as I'm a movement optimist, it's like some people out there just trying to play jazz, but it's like, oh, you show me you're competent. Come on. Yeah. That, it is. I, I love that there's timing in, in all things. You know, it's not, you don't just have to get into sprinting to do it. And it's not, you know, 
I think it's easy to say, oh, the weight room is just general. And it becomes an excuse to say one thing to an athlete, just push your hips back and lift as much as you can, you know, but it's like, no, there's, there's more, there's, there is still timing that exists here. There's still, there is still that thing that exists within this. All right. So, Hey, to close this out, I, I, I mentioned this really early on, but, and this has nothing to do with what we were talking about before in the middle. Absolutely nothing. Well, I, I, um, it was just the, the, the CrossFit, the, like you talk a little bit about linear periodization, right? Like I guess the science, and then you have like something like CrossFit comes along and people can still get strong in CrossFit gyms without linear periodization. It breaks a lot of rules. And I'm, you know, I, I mean, is that to say that if they were going to, be an olympic lifter that that would be and and they were going to do olympic lifting meets and that was you know their ultimate goal was to lift as much as possible and not do anything else would that be the ultimate we system? should say we're stereotyping yeah. here because i worked yeah. at a really good crossfit box and like they had like really well thought out programming with really flexibility but yeah the, the crossfit stereotype but again this is where i uh learned all of this stuff like they just work so much harder like <laughs> when you look i'm not talking about athletic populations but like they get people who are like lawyers accountants someone working at a coffee shop just i'm not used to seeing people in their mid-30s training that hard but they're going so hard and yeah a lot of them get injuries and stuff like that Mm -hmm. when the programming and the load isn't managed uh intelligently or responsibly but like it just says something for like just and again why do they work so hard because it's just such an awesome atmosphere like people haven't been encouraged like that no (laughs) you don't go to the track and like you're running fast and the guy beside you is like like maybe you could see that, but no one is just like where's CrossFit? You'll be your first day in the class, and everyone just be cheering, clapping for you, like they've known you for years. And it's just insane the results you can get. Some guy who's just like a bit of a sloppy person, dedicated too much to work and work beers. A couple mm-hmm. of weeks later, six pack abs and snatch hundred kilos. You're like, what the hell happened? Like, let people train for years, not get that far. And again, it's just like they just get into it so much. It's and I also think there's something to be said. And this is a mistake I made early on. I think you can do more net training if -hmm. you train more generally. I think the amount of training that they there's only so much bodybuilding you can do. There's only so much strength training. And for certain people with very specific goals, it's like, yeah, do the most amount of that possible. But I just think the sheer volume of training the CrossFitters end up doing. Again, again, because it is general in nature, they're just beating up different parts of the body and different energy systems throughout the week, sometimes simultaneously. But again, if you're doing it right, you spread it around a little bit. Yeah, this is a Pat Davidson was just like, yeah, they're just masters of the sagittal plane. Because I always felt like CrossFitters moved really good, but I was always watching them in the weight room. And I can't remember what year, this is before I heard Pat Davidson say this, but I distinctly remember the year they introduced running into the CrossFit yes, games, like yes. a bit of middle distance. And I was like, oh, it's like, funny. Pat, they don't have a frontal plane. No. It's out the window. They, they are masters of the sagittal plane. A lot of them have really, really nice hip flexion extension, ankle mobility, shoulder flexion extension. But again, they cannot center themselves over a stance leg because there is single leg or staggered stance work in CrossFit workouts. But again, they're trying to be efficient and they're moving so slow that they always just got their head smack bang in between their two limbs. They're not really creating a stance leg in the middle of a CrossFit what? They're like, oh, try to stay mid-stance. Don't use the back leg too much. They're just like wailing on both sides, essentially just making it a bilateral movement. And again, all the workouts are done in lanes. Like, again, again it's the meta is opening up a little bit, but again, the main CrossFit competitive meta is like all these workouts occur in lanes. Lots of variability, but all moving forwards and backwards. Yeah. It, yeah. It's a, a bit. CrossFit is a bit better at running now. 
Crossfitters running. Yeah, it makes me, I've always thought that <laughs> I, I, I do uh, a lot of sprint analysis videos. It would be kind of funny to do some CrossFit running, running analysis. Sorry, just one last thing before it pops out of my head, because I think it is really important. Like, why are they masters of the sagittal plane? Like, you can boil it down to just like, oh my God, they essentially train like powerlifters, weightlifters, but then they balance it out with all this gymnastics. And that's all the flexion. It's just like injecting all this flexion and all this posterior weight shift into a strength training program. So it ends up from a sagittal plane perspective, like I said, just being really balanced. Yeah. It is, you know, like you said, there are there are CrossFit programs that do really good programming. And it is kind of, I do think that the strength and conditioning sports performance industry is like, it's like an antithesis with CrossFit. Like they would look at CrossFit and just think, oh, it's all, it's all just nonlinear, you know, just kind of stupidity. So there's I guess, a lot with PRI but and, it's, and CrossFit. Like, what do you think gymnastics hollow position is? Like, yeah, get them a zone of that position and a low reach. Jesus. Like, yeah. Yeah. I think. I just don't like it because it's hard work. Yeah, you see, I think you see the average, what you would depict as the average CrossFitter. And it's just like, well, you're just doing a lot of hard work. And what are you doing? Like, what are you working for? Right. But it's, it is interesting. Like when I uh, had Julian Pinot on the podcast recently, I was looking into some of the, like the interviews with CrossFit Invictus. He worked there and it was in like in LA, I think for a while. I was like, wow, these guys do an amazing job. Like I am so impressed with all the mindfulness they put behind their programming, the podcast. I'm like, I feel like there's actually a lot to learn, a lot to learn by spending time in that type of environment, even though it's not the typical training outcome that you know if you have a specific element you know that you're training for like a sprint or olympic lift uh, meet but like yeah, you can't deny some of the results those people get and like you said it, it is i think about like the like the tony holler like he, he talks like the gauntlet 40 when they go out for sprinting they go out to the track they line the track and they cheer for the person coming through and people set prs like crazy but it's like take that on the track it's spread out you know and it's not usually like that but now you're in a box and people can have that environment on a regular basis. And it, with the GPP, like you said, too, I, I'm trying to remember the individual who hit what his name is. Uh, maybe, you know, it's got this huge, he's like 6'8", 400 pounds or 370 pounds. He squats like... Tom Haviland. Yeah, Haviland. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. Like, yeah, like finish. squats like eight, nine hundred. It's only one man. Yeah, yeah. There's only one <laughs> man. to grass. Yeah. Ask to grass. Insanely strong. I mean unbelievable how strong that guy is but i know a lot of his recovery is he just does gpp he lives like out in the country it's like a farm or something and he's just doing like gpp like long carries like all the time like throughout the day or something or at least once a day he's doing something that's just general work 45 minutes get a sweat up get your heart rate up and i do think yeah you look across but there's that element that certainly exists as well so he also is a novelty seeker he has an odd lift of the day yeah. Every day he just does a weird lift. Like he did a 220 kilo <laughs> Zercher clean. And it wasn't like mine where it was a max out. Like he caught it with straight knees. It was- um, <laughs> It's crazy. It's, it's arguably one, it's one of the craziest. I've seen a lot, seen pretty much every world record barbell lift. And it's still one of the most impressive things I've seen. Yeah. It shocked me. There's so much that people could learn by studying that guy. I think it's just, it, he just does strength in a way that we, we're not typically used to. But I think just studying- like, yeah, what he does, I think there's so much to learn from it. So, And it goes to show you, like, he's overly muscled for a lot of athletic pursuits. But again, it's not about, like, how strong you are. So there's this amount of, like, too strong. It's like, no, you just need to be doing different things because sport requires you to do a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is a testament to, yeah. Like, and I, and I, I will say it is funny. Like, when I'm, my nervous system, like, outputs are trending not great. I'll go and I'll do like a, I, I, that's kind of like a GPP workout I came up for in the winter, which is like, instead of like 
I'm going to do, I don't know, four 60 meter sprints with five or eight minutes rest. They're all as fast as you can or high recovery. I'll just put 30 minutes on the clock, 40 minutes on the clock. I got a sandbag and I'll like, and I have like a, like a card deck and it's like, you know, deck uh, hearts is like, throw the sandbag over your shoulder clean and whatever you, you know, if it's a eight, you do eight of them, you know, and another one's like, hold the sandbag and sprint up the hill with it. And it's like, there's and and it's all like that. And it's like, there's no time. And you just do it for 30, 40 minutes. And dude, after that, that resets my system so well. And part of it is just the capacity there too. And then I can go back and do an the SNC fartlek. <laughs> it is. It's an SNC fartlek. And I'm like, it's okay that it's not all high quality. You actually have to be okay with that for a little bit because it's not, this isn't, I'll come back the next workout in time, my forties and they're fine. You know, it's just, it's just nice to get that general, to sit back and do some general capacity. It's like the lost art, you know, that complements things. Yeah, active recovery is too much of an oxymoron, but like there's definitely, you can't be completely sedentary. Yeah. Like the, I never felt amazing coming off days off. That was a mistake I used to always make, just like trying to take a day off before a big day of lifting. But just, it's more just like, just have a moderate day. Yeah. Yeah. Moder- a moderate day, get a little sweat, do a little work. <laughs> it's, uh, I know some people, though, and again, they're typically bigger, beefier guys. They love to just like straight up hibernate for a day. Yeah, but there are gets, some. Typically, like throw the legs out, get down a parallel, <laughs> go home, eat more. Yeah, maybe like I think I feel like those people are more like the super fast twitch, like just lots of muscle mass, fast twitch, explosive types. They I think could do better with that sometimes than people who are moderate twitch, more a little <laughs> more stringy. <laughs> uh, anyways, well, man, I know we didn't get to all the questions today, Angus, but totally cool. I, I had a great time Probably talking to you. Probably my fault. No, it was good. I re- I always look forward to these podcasts. Like you know, it's an honor for me to come onto the show. This was the when I was getting into personal training and I started commuting two hours, they just go up to the gym. I asked my brother what the best SNC podcast was. And he was like, it's just fly sports. I used to smash it on the commute every day. So ran out of episodes and yeah, to come on, like I said, it's always a pleasure. Your questions are always very thoughtful and not just same answers every single time. Yeah. Well, Hey, thank you. I, I love the conversation, man. I gave me so many things to think about and you know, it's even just the way I'm watching lunges and things like that. And, and the knees behind toes, the split squat. Like, I, I love it, man. So many things to think about, work with. So anyways, man, well, thank you so much. I appreciate being on. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. Appreciate you being here. If you want to help us out, you can leave us a rating or review on whatever you're listening to this show on Spotify, iTunes, and we'll see you all next week with another great guest.